The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. Of course, Sylvia uh, live in Brussels and Karen myself here in London. These are your headlines. EU leaders failing to agree on fresh funding for Ukraine amid stiff opposition from Hungary, but does confirm accession talks with the war-torn country. It was important to make sure uh, that even if uh, one country would have some uh, hesitation, some doubts, or even an, an opposition uh, on what uh, was on the table, it was important that uh, the, the, there was no formal opposition, so that uh, we are in a position to make a decision. The Fed-induced rally just lose a bit of steam in Europe and the US, but Asian equities push higher, Hong Kong's Hang Seng leading the charge. Chinese industrial output surges in November, but concerns over consumer demand linger as retail sales come up short. And Europe's central banks are on the hawkish side, pushing back against market expectations of a pivot in the new year, with the ECB saying it didn't even talk about cuts. We did not. We did not discuss rate cuts at all. No discussion, no debate on this issue. Well, the EU has failed to agree on a 50 billion euro funding deal for Ukraine after the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban blocked the proposal. Talks stretched into the early hours of this morning, but collapsed, with Hungary the sole opponent. However, the bloc has agreed to open accession talks with Kyiv, despite Orban threatening to block the process ahead of the summit. Uh, Sylvia now joins us from Brussels. Sylvia, this is bigger than Ukraine, this problem. This is a problem that the European Union has with 27 disparate voices as well. When will we get QMV? When will we get some form of majority voting and actually streamline the EU to make it swift enough to make decisions? Well, actually, the leaders said in their communique late last night that they will be looking at some of the processes to be reformed in 2024. They will be starting conversations on how to prepare the EU for a bigger group at some point in 2024. And that will naturally include the question of qualified majority versus consensus decisions. Because, yes, we're coming to a point where sometimes requiring requiring unanimity is a problem we cannot see the eu moving forward sometimes because of that but let me give you the breakdown really of the last 24 hours here in brussels because this summit has been very very eventful at the beginning we arrived here and there were huge question marks about whether the heads of state would say yes to starting accession talks with ukraine so kiev can actually become a member of the eu and the answer to that is yes. The 27 leaders said yes to starting official negotiations with Ukraine. Now, that is a political message. It was already welcomed in Ukraine by the president, Mr. Zelensky. But then when you look at some of the consequences of what had happened here, really, one European official told me that the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, he left the room 
when the 26, when the other 26 heads of state were voting on starting accession talks to the EU. From a practical point of view, what that means is that he was essentially saying, I do not approve this. He is of the opinion that Ukraine is not ready to start these official conversations with the EU, but he also did not want to prevent the others from going ahead with the process. And we have to remember, though, that this is only really step four out of nine when it comes to joining the EU. We're still talking about a lot of years ahead before Ukraine will perhaps become a member of the European Union. So there's a lot of work ahead for Ukraine, but nonetheless, it got that political message that Ukraine itself wanted to hear from the EU. The bad news, though, is when it comes to the 50 billion euros, because actually going into the summit, it was the opinion that we could see a breakthrough on the cash more easily than on accession talks for Ukraine, but that was not the case. The leaders failed to agree on a package of 50 billion euros to Ukraine that would be dispersed between 2024 and 2027. And the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, he had this message saying that they will return to this topic in 2024. Let's take a look. I can inform you that 26 leaders agreed on the negotiables in all its companies. I should be uh, very precise. One leader, Sweden, uh, needs to consult uh, its parliament, which is in line with the usual uh, procedure for this uh, country. And one leader uh, couldn't agree uh, on this uh, negotiables. It means that there is a strong support for all the components of this uh, negotiables, uh, expressed by 26 leaders. I hope Sweden uh, will also uh, follow. All the priorities, this important support for Ukraine, uh, migration, uh, solidarity uh, fund, uh, defense, this is part of this uh, uh, box, and it means that uh, we will revert uh, to this uh, matter early next year and we will try to get uh, unanimity uh, in order to make possible uh, for us to implement this um, box. So the reason why we did not see the 27 agreeing on fresh cash for Ukraine was because Hungary vetoed that move. And so let's see what will happen in 2024 when it comes to giving further financial aid to Ukraine. But of course, this is bad news for Kyiv at a time when they're struggling with their counteroffensive. And then let's not forget as well, guys, that there's still a huge question mark about whether the United States itself will continue to support Ukraine with financial support in 2024 as well. Sylvia, I've got so many questions for you, uh, and, and, and you're brilliant at this as well. But look, I was going to ask you about Ukraine itself being in the EU. And as, again, I'll make the same point I made yesterday. I, I, I think the country is amazing, but I don't think it's anywhere near. I think it's light years away from being in the EU as well. But that's another issue. What I want to ask you about is Viktor Orban. This is the only EU leader who's met Putin in the last 12 months. This is a man who thinks we're pushing the Kremlin too far, despite the fact that he's launched a, a vicious land war in Europe, uh, destroying up, uh, just ripping up uh, sovereignty rules that have been in place since 1945. Does Europe have a longer term Orban problem that it can solve? Well, it's a very hard question to answer, Steve, because, you know, going into this summit, I had some conversations with European officials that suggested that, yes, perhaps the meeting that we saw taking place in October between the Prime Minister of Hungary and the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, 
could have some sort of influence on what we're hearing from uh, Hungary these days. We don't know whether that's true or not. These are some of the rumors that have been taking place here in Brussels. But indeed, they are seeing, they look at Hungary, the, the rest of the 26, as being this ally of uh, Russia to some extent. But the essence, though, when you speak to Hungarian officials, and I had the chance to speak to the foreign affairs minister and yesterday with the prime minister himself, when, do you get, when they uh, get asked about their close links to Russia, their message is very clear that someone in the EU still needs to keep some sort of communication channels open with Russia. So that's how they see the situation. And when you think about the future of the EU, it remains to be seen how the Hungarian relationship with the rest of the EU will unfold. But one thing to keep in mind, though, is when it comes to sanctions, we've seen the EU applying 11 packages of sanctions on Russia. That move requires unanimity among the 27, and that was never really blocked by Hungary. So. You can look at the silver lining here as well, and Hungary has been supportive of these tough measures, measures against Russia too. But in the long term, let's see how this will unfold. Sylvia, thank you for giving us the update today. Let's push on to markets. It's been a very big trading week for a lot of investors watching the Fed and the Fed pivot. We had another rally yesterday. Slim gains to the upside on the Nasdaq, just two tenths of a percent. But take a look at the Dow, four tenths north, another 158 points to the upside. This was a fresh all-time high for the Dow, second day in a row across on the S&P 500, the Nasdaq. New 2023 peaks, so we continue to reach for fresh territory as the market digests what they hope will be rate cuts next year and sizable ones. Again, the market moving ahead of what the Fed is expecting. I want to show you areas of the market that have rallied hard, and namely banks. We saw this as a feature right on the back of that Fed pivot, that there are gains of uh, about 4 to 5% on the banking index. That continued in the same vein yesterday. You could see another 4.3% added to the S&P bank stocks and across over the course of the week that has tallied up to near on 9%. But... And this is where we talk about a laggards rally. You can see just how slim the gains have been in this context. Still only 4% for the trading week versus what you're seeing across on those big other plays on internet stocks traveling up to the tune of 48% so far year to date. Even if the gains have been more limited in the session yesterday and over the course of the week versus the banks. I want to take you to Treasuries. Huge moves on Treasury markets we've seen, particularly on these yields dropping about 30 odd basis points in both the short and the long term over the course of this trading week to the point where the 10 year is still hugging the level below 4%. We're at 3.95 and at the two year we're at 4.42. So there's been significant movement on the back of repositioning around monetary policy. To the dollar, it's been a dollar fade. We've drifted off by about 1.9% over the course of the trading week. Morning session, those sterling euro both on the back foot versus greenback that is trying to claw back some territory. 127.57 on cable. We're just shy of the 110 on euro dollar. Dollar yen trading 141.93. Certainly come off a long way in recent days. 7.11 on dollar yuan rates. The oil trade. Closely watching this, a couple of different factors at play now. The market closely looking at that drop in the dollar, but also around the demand forecast coming up to next year from the IEA. And that has put another prop onto the market. It's just a slight one at this stage, about a tenth of a percent to the upside for WTI, trading above the 71 mark, and we're above 76 on Brent in the morning session. Across to Asia, as we get through the Friday trade, you can see it is again a day for stocks in Hong Kong, up 2.4%. Perhaps we can bundle this 
one up in a laggards rally. We are seeing that stock market, which has been one of the clear underperformers of the global equities trade. It has tried to balance morning session. You can see near on 400 points to the upside. China stocks moving into the red elsewhere. We're bookended by gains out of the Japanese stock market and also out of Australia. Let's get some thoughts on the market. Mark Lehman joins us now, CEO of JMP Securities. Mark, great to have you on board this morning. It has certainly been a monster week around risk on uh, investors repositioning on certain assets. Just walk us through some of the insight that you've got on the back of this Fed pivot. Well, you you said it at the outset of the show. I think you are seeing massive uh, accumulation of some shares that were, frankly, not in vogue in the first part of the year, and it's directly tied to rates. And I think you're seeing more of a risk-on strategy, so I think portfolio managers are getting more invested in the market and have seen that in some of the hedge fund managers. We've seen some big block trading um, as well. And I, again, I think there's being more money put to work. And I think the story that you'll see, we're going into year end and portfolio managers are going to be showing what they own going into year end and they're positioning for 2024. And I think you're going to, that's a harbinger for good things in the first half of 24, because we've had a very dull IPO market for a couple of years. We've had a very dull tape, except for kind of the magnificent seven that everybody's talking about. But this has been a widening out of the markets here the last few days, a few weeks. And it's very important to see this Santa Claus rally that we're seeing at the end of the year. Mark, we've had people around the set in recent weeks when this rally kicked off in November. They didn't believe it. They were not getting involved. They thought it was a fake rally. It's certainly not been. It's continued on. It's been reinforced by the Fed. What do those fund managers need to do now? I think it's what I said at the beginning. I think people are underexposed to the markets. I think it happens all the time. I think people say, you know, I'll be able to, I'll catch it in front of the rally or I'll be able to get into this market. The violent swings that we've seen on the upside in terms of the stock market and obviously in the rally in the tenure has caused these people to frankly not catch it. And I think something you didn't mention at the outset of the show is the widening of the market. So let's look at the Russell 2000, which is much more of a small cap index. Just 50 days ago, almost 50 days ago, it made a 52-week low. Today, it made a 52-week high. In 50 days, the index went up to its 52-week high from a 52-week low. That's the violent nature of this rally. It's widening out. It's, I believe, just beginning. And I think people are underexposed. Mark, very simple question from me. What can go wrong? Is it stickier inflation or recession or something else? Uh, Listen, it's a great question. I think there's some political risks, obviously, that are going on. I think we have this announcement from the Fed that there's going to be multiple rate cuts in 24. So there's a question of too much, too fast, frankly, on that side of the trade. And then I think earnings, of course, you're going to have to support the rally with earnings. And I think you're going to have to see that when the fourth quarter earnings start in mid-January. So there's plenty to worry about. But I think there's violent move in the 10-year and this recalibration of what people are paying for stocks is 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 warranted because we've really had this drought. We've also, again, not seen the capital markets reopen. You see that reopen and you'll test the IPO window. Um, I'm not predicting that, but I think you'll see some of that activity in the first half of the year. What about liquidity, Mark? Everyone gets very, very excited and, and maybe rightly so about the pivot this week. It has been quite extraordinary, arguably historic. But, but there is something else going on as well, which I think people forget about, and that is the fiscal position of the United States combined with QT as well. You talked about capital markets not being fully open yet, and I think that's a really interesting point. But add that to the fact that there is a liquidity withdrawal. Does that create a problem? 
It, it does. Um, but some of the, you know, the markets are taking advantage and take, doing some of the Fed's work here. When you see a 10-year go from, you know, low fives to high threes in, in, in such a short time, some of the work of the Fed is being taken care of itself. And I don't think there's a lot of leverage in the system and the leverage in the investment market. Banks are still tightening for the Fed. Uh, you know, Citizens of Bank, um, our bank, um, is seeing, like every bank, a much higher standard for what they're putting loans out. And they're very, very uh, acute with what is on their balance sheet right now. So the banks are doing some of the work of the Fed. And again, I don't think the market is over levered. I'm not seeing funds who are 200% net long. Uh, I, I saw that a lot the last decade. We're not going to see that again for a long time. So I'm less worried about this kind of rubber band being uncorked. And I'm, I'm more confident that this is kind of here to stay. Mark, something we're hearing a lot about is the consumer at this point, and I think uh, some market participants have a bit of a fade on that going into 2024 after what's still been a fairly resilient year this year. I mean, we saw in the retail sales for November yesterday, plus 0.3 of a percent instead of the drop of 0.1 of a percent anticipated. Do you think the consumer will be under more pressure next year? Will that be very evident? I, I think the consumer is going to get a little bit of relief from the inflationary pressures abating. Oil, uh, which you mentioned at the top of the hour, obviously, you're seeing gas prices in over half the states, and it's very cheap over here relative to Europe, but under $3 a gallon. That's a big drop from where it was. I, I read an article in mid-October that showed J.P. Morgan predicting gas prices, or sorry, oil prices would go to $150 a barrel. That was six weeks ago, and now it's sub-70. Those kind of pressures on the consumer, the broad consumer, are going to help inflationary pressures cool a little bit. And I think the consumer has slowed down a little bit. We've seen that with some of our broader retailers like Target and dollar stores and Walmart. But I think the consumer is fine. But I think some of those pressures we're seeing in delinquencies are going to have some of that tempering in prices. And that will, I think, temper some of the supply, uh, oversupply that we've had for some time. I don't think these inflationary pressures are going to return. Mark, um, there was something laced into your first answer to me that uh, I haven't followed up on. And you said the politics as well. We've got this extraordinary election coming up. The latest polls are very interesting for the administration at the moment, perhaps worrying for the administration as well. What could political oscillation look like in terms of a market reaction? It's such a hard question to answer. I think Listen, we've had polls since the 2020 election that have shown very difficult times for the Democrats, very difficult times for President Biden. And those polls have been wrong every single time. We thought a midterm election would be a cascade for the Republicans. It was less so than that. So I think we're in a very hyper period with very little information. I think there's a lot that could happen between now and November next year. I think there's going to be a lot of rhetoric. But I think the resilience of the U.S. market is very important to look at. And I think the re-onshoring of some of the technologies, some of the legislation that's already passed, like Build Back Better and the Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to have long tails. And look, we've, we've spent almost 10 minutes, we haven't even mentioned AI, which is, I think, very important. Um, but I think it's really um, uh, something that's going to get a lot of press, going to get a lot of fear. But I think the market's stronger than that. Mark, thank you for staying up late for us. Happy Friday when you get there tomorrow. Mark Lehman with us, CEO of JMP Securities. Coming up on the show, fresh data out of China paints a mixed picture for the world's second largest economy. We'll bring you the details. Plus, we'll also bring you the latest from top central bank governors on their Super Thursday rate decisions. 
And stay tuned for our interview with former Bank of England MPC member Charles Goodhart. That is coming up at 8.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Bitcoin is hovering above the $40,000 mark amid speculation over whether it can continue a bull run that has seen its value increase by more than 150% this year. Speaking to CNBC in an exclusive interview, SEC Chair Gary Gensler gave the latest insight on the agency's approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs. We have, I think it's between eight and a dozen filings. I'm a chair of a commission, I'm not to prejudge anything, so that's going through the process right now. Uh, and as you might know, uh, we had in the past uh, uh, denied a number of these applications, but the courts uh, here in the District of Columbia uh, weighed in on that. And so we're taking a new look at this uh, based upon those court rulings. Market's excited about it. You're referring to the Grayscale, the, the subsidiary of Digital Currency Group. It doesn't look like you're objecting to that to that ruling from the courts, which is why the market is excited that this might finally happen. Well, look, Sarah, we do everything at the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, within the laws Congress has passed and how the courts interpret them. We look keenly to the economics. But I would say this about the crypto field. This is a field that your viewers should be aware that there's a lot of non-compliance, non-compliance with the securities laws that are there to help give you the disclosure so you can make the investment decision, but also to protect you against fraud and manipulation. And there's been far too much fraud and, and bad actors in the crypto field. So there seems to be a flood of potential contenders for a spot Bitcoin ETF, uh, according to, to Gensler, uh, with the numbers between eight and a dozen filings uh, through the process at the moment. So it seems as though many see the opportunity. If you think about where fintech has been over recent years, yeah. at the height of you know the fintech growth and the fintech multi, uh, valuations, multiple uh, numbers that you saw used to see, obviously they've been reset lower. Part of the equation was uh, crypto because they could clip the ticket. So the amount of volume that crypto would bring into the equation was extraordinary. This is a different beast as such, but I think many market participants hoping there'll be a lot of volume, a lot of transactions through this type of vehicle. Yeah, and, and that's their hope, isn't it? Look, um, I can't put it better than the excellent Katie Marty in the Financial Times. So I'm just going to quote directly from a piece she wrote on the 8th of December. I'll just cherry pick because it's a, it's a longer piece as well. If you ever see me in any form recommending that people should buy crypto, then one or two things has happened. Either someone has created a deep fake of me or I've been kidnapped. Uh, in the latter scenario, buy crypto would be a secret distress signal. Call the cops. She goes on to say, this is Katie Martin, not me. I hasten to add. To be clear, uh, if people want to buy these tokens, I bear them no ill. People spend money on crocs, real ale and other things I don't like. Similarly, taking a punt on crypto token is just as valid as buying a lottery ticket or putting a fiver each way on the 140 at Kempton Racecourse. The, the point that Katie's making, and she's a brilliant journalist, is that she has no ill will against people buying crypto. I have no ill will against people buying crypto. 
I don't understand where they think the, the price is going. I don't, if they understand themselves, whether they know it's worth $10,000, $100,000 or $8 trillion. I don't think they really know. I think it's a momentum trade and I think you have absolutely spotted the other side of it that, that from the purveyors of this, the sellers of the product, they just need churn. Well, one of the points that's been made in the past 24 hours, and this is from AQR Capital Management and uh, a big hedge fund magnate, Clifford Asness, is talking about the fact that um, there's too much information in markets at the moment, so markets are becoming less efficient. So if everything's a momentum trade and we're not looking at true asset um, prices, even in equity markets anymore, yep. is crypto any different? Is that the problem that you've got blurring the lines now between um, what are just really fast money trades taking place for a lot of investors at this I, stage? Retail investors can't distinguish between the two. Well, I, I disagree with that premise entirely because uh, just from a selfish point of view, because it means if that is the case, then you and I are out of a job. Because there's no analysis if everything's just a momentum trade. Morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Things are up today because it's a momentum trade. <laughs> Things are down today because it's a momentum trade. You and I are out of a job the second that is the scenario. So I, from a totally selfish, from my family's point of view, I disagree entirely with that scenario. Are things getting less efficient? Possibly inefficient so that they're all momentum trades. I will fight that one till, well, I still have a job at CNBC. Yeah, but you can get the price discovery eventually. It just means a lot of that, asset classes get carried case, though, away over the long or a short term. But to the point around what we're seeing, for me, what's interesting is whether you get other big investors and institutions dragged in, or the likes of BlackRock, Fidelity, already looking at this, uh, this uh, Bitcoin spot ETF. brilliant people over at BlackRock and Fidelity, and there are some brilliant people there as well. I hope they know what their valuation metrics are put into the machine and comes up with, because I'd be fascinated to see. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.